this is Terry Beatley, your host of What If We've Been Wrong? I'm shining light into some dark places so that beauty, goodness, and truth defeat the schemes of the enemy. It's true, people are perishing for lack of knowledge, and we're instructed to have nothing to do with the evil deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. That's what I do on What If We've Been Wrong? Rethink, explore, and uncover some hidden truths so that more people can experience an abundant life and the joy of being set free from the shackles that hold us in prison. Welcome to What If We've Been Wrong? All right, Bill, uh, you've made a pivotal uh, decision in your life that you're going to spend the balance of your life talking about this burial cloth. Uh, So I'd like to know, just give our listeners um, just a little bit of the history of how you got involved and why you decided that this is a life mission of yours. Sure. Actually, the involvement began on a more subconscious level back in 1980 when I heard one of the people who was at the original five-day examination of the Shroud give a full-bore talk presentation of what that was like, what they discovered, and it really captivated me. It just blew me away kind of at that time, although I was heavily into the type of work I did then, which was manufacturing. I I made a mental note somehow that I would probably most likely get back to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I retired, I felt it was time for me to get out of the business I was in. I'd been in there long enough, 38 years that I I just had a strong sense God was calling me to do something else. And when I actually, you know, I don't want to sound Christianese, but but when I was seeking what I ought to be doing, I just sensed I had was that God really wanted me to tell his story. Mm -hmm. And the story of Jesus is fully, is contained in the burial shroud or the uh, shroud of Turin. What amazes me is most people have not even heard about the Shroud of Turin, and and I'm speaking for myself now as a former evangelical Protestant, and I'm now Catholic, but as a Protestant, you would hear the word, you know, the Shroud, but there was, at least my exposure, no teaching, no education about it, and it was. It was like a Catholic thing. It's like, well, whatever, that's what Catholics do. So can you give us a little bit of the... Um, you know, it's like, you know, is this just a Middle Ages kind of carbon dating uh, object that really has no relevancy for today? Well, the Shroud is, is what I believe the greatest evangelistic tool of our age because it puts Jesus Christ front and center in front of the world, whether you're an atheist or an agnostic, whether you're a believer or not a believer, people have questions about the shroud. They're intrigued by it. And the shroud itself, basically, when you learn about what is on it, it blows you away mm-hmm. and puts, puts a whole new dimension into our faith that I don't believe was fully there before. And it's a reality dimension where in our current day and age, we basically are trying to shove the reality of God out of the way because it's inconvenient. But the shroud does just the opposite, but in a most brilliant manner. So again, that's for lead-in, that's... 
what I would say. Well, and that's and that's what you're going to be talking about today is the or are the amazing scientific facts. So even well, is it true that yes. that as many atheist scientists have studied the shroud, it actually led them to believe in the um, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Most and many, many of the scientists that were picked to examine the shroud in 1977, they were not picked for their faith. Mm -hmm. They were picked because they were the best of the best. And I've been to Sandia Labs where some of the original testing was done with the VP8 imaging system that they tried on the shroud. Mm -hmm. And the scientists that, that were picked literally by John Jackson, who was the... Uh, head of the physics department at the Air Force Academy, uh, were basically the best in their fields. They had the top guys from IBM, Lockheed Martin, uh, Sandia Labs, uh, Los Alamos Labs, the major, major labs across the country. These scientists came on their own dime. Mm -hmm. They were able to bring with them about $20 million worth of equipment back in 77, which was no small feat. And they were able to get a five straight day and night permission to do a non-destructive evaluation of the shroud. And do you think their main motivation was to disprove the, the shroud? Or do you think they really came objectively, just opened oh. up what science would prove? I think, I think because they were scientists, there was an objectivity to what they were doing. I think subjectively, a lot of them hoped that they'd find it to be a Middle Ages uh, uh, fraud. Mm -hmm. and that they could be on their way about Italy and not okay. have to stay five days and nights in turn. That was initially a lot of the thinking of the people that went. Mm -hmm. And what they discovered was, was far from that. They knew they were in for the long haul once they got there. All right, so, so before we get into the science of the shroud, and I'm, I'm hoping that all the listeners today, whether you're believers in Jesus Christ and his resurrection, or you know, there's, you have no connection with that at all, you're a non-believer, just stay tuned, because the next uh, 45 minutes or so, it's gonna blow your mind, the scientific facts that Bill Weingard's going to cover on this, on this brief interview. And we have Bill's, uh, a full video of, of Bill's presentation um, uh, connected onto the, the podcast platform on America Out Loud. So before we get into the science, Bill, how did the shroud, you know, if it is authentic, get from the tomb in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago to where it is now in, and do you pronounce it Turin or Turin? Turin. Turin. Okay, so Turin. the accent's on the first syllable, Turin. Yeah. So how did it get there? Well, that, that's, a, that's a fascinating question. Um, the, we believe initially that it's most likely St. Peter who brought the shroud to Antioch because he was the first, he was the bishop of Antioch for two years. And we believe that the shroud was actually kept in Antioch um, all the way through to the year about 340 when King Chosros of Persia came down and demolished Antioch, at which time it was squirreled away to a town further south called Edessa in Turkey. And it was kept there in a silver or in a metal box. You could put the whole shroud in a box about 12 inches by 12 inches, and it's folded four times. So the only thing you see when you open it is the face. And that's basically, we believe, where it went from Antioch to Edessa, where it stayed all the way to the year 900. Uh, interestingly enough, though, in the year 600, 
Christian art changed completely. This is major, because what happened was, prior to that time, Jesus was always uh, sketched or drawn as a noble Roman, curly brown hair, the Roman toga. There's even pictures in the Callista Catacombs of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, dressed in a Roman toga and curly brown hair. It wasn't until the year 600 when we have the first picture come out of the monastery of Catherine of Siena in Syria that we see Jesus with black hair, the beard, and all the features on the face are the features that line up with that face you can't quite make out on the Shroud of Turin. Mm -hmm. And the in a court of law, it would hold up because there's approximately 120 congruent points, congruent meaning points that line up, on that particular artwork. And But from that point on, the face of Jesus changed throughout history to that type of face that you see there. Well, and that's still the same face we see today, right? I mean, the paintings and yes. all that of Jesus. Okay, so oh, yes. what, um, okay, Roman noble, yes. brown, curly hair, too. I mean, quite different. Black hair, black beard, right. long hair, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. That was the major change, and uh, it, 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 it was a major... It was a major upheaval in, in, in art, to be mm -hmm. honest with you, mm -hmm. when that changed in the year 600. But it was still in Edessa at that point, and Edessa actually came under the control of the Muslims, which is interesting because the Muslims literally rebuilt the Hagia Sophia, where it was kept in Edessa, when it was flooded, because they wanted to protect the shroud as well. Now, why were they and so interested in protecting the shroud? I mean, because they, they, they agree, I, right, that Jesus... No, well, no, they just think Jesus is a great prophet. They, they don't believe he's the son of God. Right. I think that could be one of the reasons, because they still revere him as a prophet, but not as the son of God. Okay. But at any rate, I thought that that was interesting, that the shroud's permit... Because there were a lot of people that wanted to do away with the shroud. And the only thing that saved it is it had a like a an international reputation for being an image not made by human hands. Wow. Because at that time they were trying to destroy every picture of God that there was that was made by human hands. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, the difference there. But the Muslims kept it until uh, Emperor Romanus of Constantinople found out that they had it. And he wanted it. He hadn't done much in his reign, but he figured, you know, I could really use that. Uh -huh. So he sends his armies, 50,000 soldiers, to, to Edessa. They knock on the city walls. They do a deal. The Muslims are not happy at all about parting with it. Mm -hmm. But they, they reluctantly give it up for 200 prisoners and 10,000 pieces of silver. Mm -hmm. And so they eventually then, the shroud went to Constantinople. No, let me backtrack a little bit. Okay, what year did the Muslims yep. turn it over to the Christians? What year was that? Or ballpark? They turned it over, it was, uh, yeah, it was in the year 944. Oh, 944, okay. That was, right. that was, you know, 944 is when they invaded. Okay. Up, but, at, but up, you know, in the year 600, Christian art changed, but people had to come to Odessa to, you know, see the face. They started to show just the face of the shroud from the year 600 to 900. People didn't even know there was anything more to it than just that face. Okay. Even though it was all in there. Mm-hmm. And, and you're going to be getting into the science and what the photographs and the negatives and all that showed, but I, I just wanted to get yes. first some of the, the, the background history. 
real quick, it, it, it stayed in Constantinople to the year 1244, when it was invaded by the knights, believe it or not, that lost all their money when they went to the Holy Land. And they basically tore Constantinople apart. And all the relics disappeared, and the shroud disappears for 150 years. It's gone. We believe now that it was most likely kept by the Knight Templars, who they had a reputation for worshiping a piece of cloth that came to be regarded as them being heretics, and a lot of them were actually killed for being heretics. But we believe that the shroud was most likely kept by the Knight Templars for 150 years, and then it showed up in the protection of another knight, Geoffrey de Charny, in Leary, France. So that's when we see it showing up again. Okay, and then um, I've heard bits and pieces about Hitler and the Shroud. What did Hitler have to do with the Shroud, or what did he think about it? Well, if any of you saw, if any of your listeners saw the movie Monument Men, Hitler was trying to get Christian art and basically either destroy it or whatever, but he wanted the Shroud. And the King of Savoy, who was in possession of the Shroud at that time, knew it. So what he did was he squirreled the Shroud out of Turin where it went to Montevergne, Italy, to a Benedictine monastery there, where it was kept hidden. The monks only saw it one time in all the war years. Wow. And then at the end of the war, it came back to Turin. So that's how it wound up coming back to Turin. But in 1997, the chapel where it was kept was set on fire by an arsonist. And the shroud was only saved by a fireman willing to risk his life to go in there, grab the shroud, and break the bulletproof case with a nine-pound sledgehammer. That in itself was a miracle. Oh, my goodness. And drag the, the, the case of the shroud out, and when they opened it across the street, it had not been damaged. This is amazing. So we're talking about this artifact that has been traveling around now for, what, basically 2,000 years. 2,000 years, basically. 2,000 years. Yeah. I mean, you spoke of the, what would that be, the... 300 years where they would basically just show the face from the year 600 to 900 all all people saw was the face just the face but it's funny because you're speaking about it like 300 years is like 30 years but we're talking about 300 years that's all that was shown is the face on the shroud (laughs) how do we know that this shroud is real and and first you know maybe we could have started like this what is the Shroud? Give us the measurements. What are we talking about when we talk about the Shroud of Turin? Sure. Well, the Shroud is approximately 14 and one-half feet long by three and one-half feet wide. It has the image of what we call the frontal image, which is the face of Jesus going down to his feet. And then it has what, and that's looking up to the sky. Then they have the, what they call the, the, uh, the dorsal image, which is the rear image, where basically you have the back of his head you're showing, going all the way down to the tips of his toes. So it's front and back. So that's why the shroud for one man is 14 and one half feet long. Okay, and what is it made out of? It's made out of flax. And it's made out of flax with a herringbone weave. The interesting thing is, originally they were trying to say that the shroud was a product of the Middle Ages. They didn't even know what flax was in the Middle Ages. That wasn't their gig. Right. They were into tapestries back then. Mm-hmm. But the shroud that's material that it's made out of, uh, the Shroud of Turin, they believe is dates right back to the days of Jerusalem because of the weave. The weave is a herringbone weave, but the shuttle that did the herringbone weave dates to that time. 
Okay. And it was an expensive burial cloth, which Scripture says it was most likely Joseph of Arimathea's own burial cloth. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so what we talk about today is the shroud explosion. Uh, what, what do we mean yeah. by that? How, what, is this information now getting out? More and more people are understanding the science behind it and the discoveries? Yeah, well, this, ironically, the shroud explosion occurred in the year 1898. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. And the fellow that kicked it off was a mayor of a northern Italian town, Secundo Pia, in Esti, Italy. Secundo was an amazing guy. He was considered the best amateur photographer, one of the best in the world. And his reputation was that he never doctored a photographic negative. Back then, you had to make what they call a negative, which doesn't look at all like the picture you really want at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So that was what made him famous, but he was asked by the king of Italy to take the treasures of northern Italy into turn. He made a deal with them. He said, hey, look, give me two shots at filming the shroud, and I would love to do it, but can you grant me that? And he said, okay, I'll give you two shots. Mm-hmm. So he goes to turn. He has everything all set up, and he's all set to do the, the cameras, a big, bulky thing. Um, Terry, it's it's like about two and a half feet by two and a half feet by two and a half feet. And it's huge. And he had to make this special scaffolding to get it on. Then he had to go out and get a generator. And it's not like Lowe's or Home Depot. You just, you know, electricity, the electric light bulb had only been out 30 years. The camera had only been out 50. So here he has to get the generator and two lenses. He's all set to go with the thing, and the, and the generator blew up. Mm-hmm. And the lens is cracked. So now he has one last shot. Somehow he gets a generator and the lenses. He gets up there. He has to hold the shutter open for 14 minutes. I tell people with their cell phones, you just go bleak. You got the picture. 14 minutes he had to hold it open. So he holds it open for that time. Then he takes it across the street down into the basement of the apartment where he was, and he has to dip it in a chemical bath. These are glass plates Mm -hmm. that he puts into the camera. Mm -hmm. Dips it in the bath. He pulls it out. And as he pulls it out, his knees start to quiver. Tears start to come down his cheeks because what he sees in front of him is a photographic positive instead of a negative, the face of God. He said, I am looking at the face of God. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com, where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. something else happened. So we're talking years later, basically almost a little more or a little less than 100 years later, what else happens? Right. Well, what was very significant in 1976, a uh, a fellow had developed a type of software called the VP8 imaging system. VP8 imaging system was basically tested at Sandia Labs. I've been there. It's, It's an interesting place. You kind of expect to see aliens walking between the buildings. But the the interesting thing about it is that he had developed software that could take aerial photographs and look at the three-dimensional characteristics of the photograph, Mm -hmm. like if they're photographing mountains or, you know. So it had a very high military application. 
But John Jackson from the Air Force Academy was there, and he said, hey, look, I got a picture of the shroud. Would you mind just checking it on this? And when they did, they found out the shroud was three-dimensional. Ooh. Okay. So basically, just if you think about it, that'll blow your mind right there. Why would an artist in the Middle Ages do a photographic negative that nobody would see for 400 years later, and not only that, do it three-dimensionally? It, and, it just is beyond any... Okay, but help our listeners yep. understand what you mean by, because it's hard to visualize this, a picture, a flat picture on flax you yep. know, linen that's three-dimensional. What Can you elaborate on that? Well, basically, um, if you take a normal photograph of a child or something and you do, uh, you put it under the VPA imaging machine, it, it shows a distorted face. When an, a picture has three-dimensional characteristics, it doesn't do that. It shows the 3D characteristics of the picture, like an aerial photograph. It'll show the mountains. It'll show to give you some degree of the height of the terrain that you photographed. Mm -hmm. And that's what this did with the shroud. And when John Jackson saw that, he said, this is it, man. I've got to get a troop of scientists together to go to Turin and check this thing out. I mean, that's when he made his decision. He said, we've got to get over there. This thing here has is, is got more to it than, than meets the eye. That's amazing. By a ton. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, so, you know, what amazes me is how many years go by in between these discoveries, because you would think, you know, intuitively yep. when these discoveries are made, the entire world would know. But, I mean, even for me, yep. I'm 50-some years old, I spent the majority of my life being totally ignorant about the shroud. And yet, I mean, you haven't even touched on yet all the scientific evidence, the proof. No, I haven't. I haven't. The yeah. shroud, like I said, when I give my talk in different places, some of the first people that come up afterwards are Baptists or mm -hmm. Presbyterians. Mm -hmm. It's usually the non-Catholics that come flying up to, com to, to say just how much it mean meant to them. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think so and, many people think it's a yeah. Catholic thing. And actually, let's... Let's interject. Why are people making the assumption it's a Catholic thing? Is it because it's in the possession of the Catholic Church, or walk us through that? Apparently, it is. But until 1980, well, until 1983, it wasn't. How about it was that? in the sole possession of the king of, of the king of Italy, and he, in his deed before he died, willed it to the reigning pope okay. as to who owns it. Okay. So right now, Pope Francis owns the shroud. But prior to that, it was Pope uh, uh, Pope John Paul II. So you, you have you you have a sort of Catholic aspect to it, and it is the Catholic Church mm -hmm. that pronounces on whether or not you can do scientific experiments or what you can or can't do. Mm -hmm. From that perspective, but the point is, if it is the real thing, it's the real thing. I don't right. Care well, and it's meant you know, for if everybody. The had it. Right. It's meant for everybody. Yeah, if it's, if it's <laughs> the real thing it doesn't matter who's got it exactly the main thing is that it is the real th you know it right. may very well be the real thing and that's significant right well Absolutely. what they found when they started they they pulled up they had like i said 20 million bucks worth of equipment they joined up with the italians and the germans okay in turn and so you had all these people for five straight days and nights now were doing non-destructive testing what they found when they got into it was that the um blood on the shroud is real blood it's a type ab blood and the uh but they can't tell whether it's positive or negative 
but it's real blood because it has a it has what they call a uh, a serum halo around the blood, which indicates that it is real blood. Mm-hmm. The thing that kept Barry Schwartz, the fellow that works with me on my PowerPoint presentation, he's Jewish. But the thing that kept Barry from believing it was the real thing was the fact that, that the blood was still bright red. Blood doesn't stay bright. You cut yourself, you splinter, it's bright red, then it turns brown. Mm-hmm. This blood is still bright red. Mm-hmm. And he said, it's got to be something like some kind of stain or paint or something, until another Jewish doctor, Dr. Adler, got hold and he said, Barry, he said, you don't know what you're looking at. <laughs> he said, what you're looking at here is is uh, Billy Rubin. Barry said, what do you mean Billy Rubin? He said... That's what happens to the blood when you have a sustained, violent death. That's what crucifixion was, a sustained, violent death. People would slowly die on crosses for three days at a time. Mm. So that's what you're dealing with. And I had that validated to me by a medic tech on the way to San Diego who said, Billy said, when they brought soldiers into me in the Iraqi war, he said they had bright red blood too, but they had a sustained, violent death. And that does not go back. It stays bright red because the blood <laughs> undergoes a complete chemical change. Wow. And that's why it's still bright red. Mm-hmm. Okay. Isn't that interesting? Absolutely. It's interesting. The body, yeah. They found that the body is still in rigor mortis in many sections. Mm-hmm. Rigor mortis leaves the human body after 60 hours. Leaves the human body okay. after 60 hours. And decomposition sets in. Mm-hmm. The body parts, some of the body parts are, were still in rigor mortis, and there is no sign of any decomposition of the flesh mm-hmm. on the image on the shroud. Mm-hmm. So walk us through the imaging that was left on the shroud. Let's get into the passion. Yeah. Uh, this is going to take a while. Yes. Um, and, and again, this is what we want, the news of this, you know, Bill, to go around the world. What, what, what this shroud reveals, what Jesus Christ went through, in, in the passion. Yes. So take it away. Well, I, I actually, I, I'm, maybe it's because I'm Catholic, but I don't think necessarily so, or it ain't necessarily so. The, I start the passion with the, uh, with the Last Supper, mm-hmm. because in our scriptures, for those of you who aren't Catholic, and uh, those of you who are Protestant as well know that, that Jesus did the Last Supper, and He's giving us the future of the church at the Last Supper. The apostles aren't getting it. And Mel Gibson did a beautiful shot of that. They're thinking more like what's going to happen to Jesus. Because here's the gig. In Jerusalem at that time, they had all the, they call them stipes. They're like telephone poles, and they're in the ground everywhere. Because Pilate was killing up to 500 people a day on crosses. Okay? Jesus, when he was alive, was walking past people dying on crosses. At night, animals would come and gnaw on people's legs that are on crosses. Birds would literally come down and pull out their eyes because they couldn't stop them from doing it. So at any rate, those were the things the apostles were thinking about it because Jesus kept saying this is what he was going to do when he went to Jerusalem. They were talking him out of trying to go to Jerusalem. He wouldn't listen because he knew that he had to go there. And the big question is, well, why did he have to go there? Well, I'll get into that right now. So they have the Last Supper. Judas does his dastardly deed. Jesus gives us his body and blood, but then Judas, that goes back to, well, I won't get into that right now. It's a little more than we have time for. But at any rate, Judas does his dastardly deed. He runs out of the room and goes to betray Jesus. Jesus goes out of the room with his apostles, and they go down the Kidron Valley, which also means Valley of Mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. 
down into the Kidron Valley, up into another garden, where the apostles go off in one section and Jesus goes off by himself into another, to basically have the same type of showdown that Adam had thousands of years before in another garden. Mm -hmm. Adam flunked the test. And that's why Jesus is right there at that point in time, because Jesus came because he's the only God could have reversed the curse that Adam put on the world by his turning away from God and disobeying him. The world was redeemed, and this is what I talk about, the passion. I talk about the total, complete, utter, absolute humiliation of God. The world was redeemed through humiliation and obedience because Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He can't deal with it. It was incredibly difficult because he knew it was coming down the pike. Right. Not just physically, but spiritually. Mm -hmm. People turning away from him. The whole world not wanting to recognize what he was going to do. Okay, mm -hmm. He's got all that going through. So what happens is his perspiration goes into what they call hematidrosis. The blood starts to mingle with his perspiration and comes out as pores. We saw this happen here in the United States when criminals were, on, on, uh, were going to be electrocuted. Some of them actually broke out into bloody sweats. Mm -hmm. During the French Revolution, when people were lined up to go to the guillotine, many of them broke out into bloody sweats. And that's this called is what Jesus went through. Again, that's called hematidrosis. Hematidrosis. Okay. Yeah, the medical well, term is hematidrosis. Okay, that's where you're sweating drops of blood. Your blood is mixed with your sweat. Sweating drops of blood. Yeah, right. And this yep. is the part part where we call them the agony in the garden. You know, the agony in yes. the garden. We so call it's that Catholics. the agony in the garden. Right. I mean, we contemplate on that, you know, like in the rosary, uh, where you know we contemplate yes. what did, or at least in our feeble little minds, what was Jesus thinking? What was he experiencing even before uh -huh. the ultimate crucifixion? He yeah. knew what was going to happen yeah. to him. But then what you're going to be sharing with us is the shroud proves what happened to him. So yes, what, it does. Start walking uh, us through that, Bill. The face on the shroud, for instance, that's why I'm going to get into the face aspect of the shroud. Because the next thing that happened was the soldiers were coming up. You could hear the clanking of their armor and stuff and the swords. And they show up, and there's Judas. And he goes up and betrays them. That's why in, in Greece today they kiss on two cheeks rather than one, because <laughs> Judas kissed him on one cheek. Mm -hmm. But to be you know to be truthful, that that's. But at any rate, he betrays him, and then they haul him away. And the first step on the journey, they take him to Annas's house. He was a former high priest, but out of respect to him, they drop Jesus off there for more questions, and they start to beat him up. And you can see this on the face. But it's not until they get to Caiaphas's house where they really start to punch him around more. Mm -hmm. And his nose is broken. You can see the broken nose on the face on the shroud. And he's got a black eye on the left eye. But then something extremely significant. If you look at the face on the shroud, you'll see where the beard is. You'll see an empty section of the beard. It's like a black mark, which is really empty space. It's not, it's not beard. And what they did was, Isaiah, 700 years before, talked about plucking the beard and then laying the stripes on his back. Mm -hmm. um, but what he did was, they pulled out the, uh, when he went to Caiaphas, they pulled out the beard. Mm -hmm. And you can see that on the face of the shroud. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the highest form of insult you can do to somebody in the Middle East. So mm -hmm. Caiaphas is, is dumping on him, and he finally gets him to admit that he is God. And that does it. So they drop him down into the cellar or the jail beneath the basement of Caiaphas's house. Mm 
somebody came up to me when I spoke at Westminster Presbyterian Church, and she said I was there, Bill. They took us into that cell. They turned the lights out. What they did was is they'll make their render their verdict. In this case, it was Jesus was guilty of blasphemy, thinking he was God. And they put him down there, and they're going to actually pass judgment the next morning. So they lower him down with ropes into this dark cell. Mm-hmm. Then they haul him out the next morning, and they take him to Pilate. Okay, that's the next step in the journey. Mm-hmm. Now, Pilate takes one look at Jesus, and he says, what the heck are you bringing him to me for? And then they tell him, and he says, well, wait a minute, the guy probably's done nothing wrong. Why, why do you want to kill him? And, and he's getting a little nervous, though, because part of the problem was that Caiaphas was in cahoots with Tiberius, the emperor. Mm-hmm. Tiberius would send soldiers, they would help protect the Jewish people, and he also sent Tiberius money from the temple. So there was some collusion there between the two of them. But Pilate is, knows that Jesus is innocent, so he's trying to look for a way out. So he says, hey, I'll send him. When he found out that he was in Herod's jurisdiction, he sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back dressed like an idiot. They put all these fancy robes. That's why I say the story to passion is the story of the humiliation of God. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. So this extra soldier, they estimate between four and 800 soldiers in the Praetorium when they brought Jesus in there. And part of the gig was to make fun of the criminal. And the, the soldiers did not like Jewish people. And here's a Jew who claimed to be a king. Mm-hmm. And so they were going to have a field day with him. Right. Okay. But you got to remember one thing. The, the centurion that was in charge of Jesus' whole crucifixion was most likely there, too. Because what they do is they assign what they call a quaterium to a prisoner. Four soldiers headed up by a centurion. And, but at any rate, they're making fun of Jesus big time. And when they put the crown of thorns on his head... They smash it down. They didn't plate it. They just, there were thorns that grew right outside the building, and they, they just whacked. They made it like a bunch. And then they, they, from everything they can tell, they, were tied, they tied it down on his head mm-hmm. so it wouldn't come off. Mm-hmm. And every time they hit it, Frederick Zugaby, forensic pathologist for the state of New York, he said that of all the things Jesus experienced, he felt the crowning of thorns was the most painful of all because there are thousands and thousands of nerve endings in your scalp. And, and, and here, I just want to throw this in. This is probably—I was just going to say that this is the, probably the least thing people think of. Oh, they put thorns on his head. Okay, whatever. And you think yeah. more of the flogging, um, but it's—it's yeah. it's, like you said, it's nearly the opposite because of all the nerve endings. He said it's the worst of, all, of everything. He thought was oh. the crowning of thorns. Okay. Because every time he touched something, it would send lightning bolts down through his body. Oh. Okay. And, and so, so he goes through all of that. 
And they're making fun of him. They're spitting in his mouth. They're cursing him, everything, the whole bit. And then they haul him back out to Pilot. Pilot is definitely not a happy camper because he knows he's dealing with an innocent guy. Mm-hmm. But he's, they're not letting up on him. The Jewish leaders aren't letting up on Pilot. They know that Pilot's waffling. They said, nope, you got to do it all the way because if you don't, and this is where they got him. They said, he claims to be a king, and, and if you let him get away with that, you're in violation of Caesar. Right. Because only Caesar can be king, see? Mm-hmm. So they, they kind of hit him with a two-by-four, and he crumbles. Mm-hmm. And so he reluctantly agrees to, to, for him to be crucified. And the next step, of course, in the journey, and this is what we see. We see all the blood coming down the, the head from the crown of thorns. You can see it front and back on the shroud, okay? But you can also see, it's interesting, the hair that Jesus had. His hair goes all the way down his back like a ponytail halfway down his back, okay? Mm -hmm. That's how rabbis wore their hair back then. Right. In like a ponytail. So at any rate, they haul him out, and he holds Jesus up. Jesus can barely stand up. You've got to remember, he wasn't a a weakling. He stood about 5'11". Carpenters back then were also stonemasons. So he was tough. I mean, they estimate he weighed about 175 pounds. Mm Mm-hmm. And he was tall for the people back then. 5'11 was tall. But at any rate, he hauls him out, and then, of course, he crumbles. They said, crucify him, crucify him. And he finally crumbles, and he said, he releases him. Then the quaterium kicks in. But they knew, see, the quaterium has to get him to the place of execution alive. So he can't die on the way there. But he's been so badly beaten up, they weren't even sure he was going to get started. But they, 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 for him to take what most people show, the whole cross, that's a joke. The whole cross weighs 350 pounds. And I don't care if you're Arnold Schwarzenegger, toughest guy in the world maybe. You're not going to be able to do that after you've been up all night, had the heck beaten out of you, have a broken right. nose, been beaten, been scourged, lost all that blood, the whole ball game, right? And I have so they often... probably tapped Simon of Cyrene early. Huh? Well, no, I've often thought, wait a minute, how did Jesus do this? Not that I was, like, doubting, but it's like, how, I mean, after, no, recognizing all, everything he had been through, how did he carry this massive cross? So you're going to set the record straight. He's 350 what? pounds. It's yeah. impossible. Right. What so, they did what is they it, give him a patibulum, okay. the cross piece. Mm-hmm. That's what they gave him. Okay. But that weighs 60 to 80 pounds, mm-hmm. okay? But even that was too much. And I believe they tapped Simon right off the bat, mm-hmm. pretty close to helping him carry it because they had to get him there alive. He couldn't die, Mm -hmm. okay? So now he starts this journey along these serpentine roads. The roads are designed to curve because they want to drag the criminal in front of as many people as possible, and that's what they were doing with Jesus. And you can see on the shroud, you can see where the patibulum cuts into his shoulder, but also where he fell. You can look at his knees, and you can see all the... uh, the scrape marks on the knees where he fell. And so now he's going, and the roads are ruddy. I mean, they're not, they, aren't, they aren't like what we have, asphalt roads. Forget that. Mm-hmm. But one of the things, as I said from the science, they determined they found dirt on the knees and on the feet. And the dirt is travertine argonite. That's the exact soil comp of the streets of Jerusalem that they found on the image as well. I will say the darkness was complete and total. It wasn't an eclipse of the sun. You can't have it in a Jewish Passover because the moon has to be full. 
Mm-hmm. It was a complete total, three, four ancient historians, they all attest to the fact darkness was so intense you could see the stars when you looked up. Mm-hmm. At any rate, that's what's going down. So he dies, right? And they have the earthquake, the curtain in the temple was cut right in half at the time he died. But also, what happens was, now that he's died, they have to prove he's dead. So they take this spear that the Romans had, and they put it between the fifth and sixth ribs into the uh, pericardial cavity, into the pleural, into the, rather, the pleural cavity, on into the pericardial cavity. They pull it out, there's your blood and water. Mm-hmm. The reason they knew he was dead, it said immediately blood and water came out. If, if he wasn't dead, it wouldn't have been immediate. At any rate, he's dead. So now they have to get him down from the cross, and they take a, a white a broad sheet, they wrap it around his face while he's on the cross, they wash the blood that was on the body down before they pull out the nails, because that was blood before death. Mm-hmm. When they pull out the nails, you see blood coming down the arms. That's after death. They don't wash that off in Jewish mm-hmm. burial. Okay. So they take him down from the cross, and they haul him to the tomb. Joseph Nicodemus and uh, Joseph of Arimathea, they say, are the two that pulled him that they take him to the tomb and they lay him on the slab, okay? And they take off the cloth that was around, it's called a sudarium, that just has blood on it, but the blood matches the face on the shroud. And they put it off to the side. Then they roll the stone over it, okay? Mm-hmm. And I told you about the body still being in rigor mortis. Well, they estimate now, from what they can see of the image on the shroud, this is phenomenal. The image is a series of pixels. You're familiar with computer technology. Right. Pixels. Uh, that well, it's a whole series of pixels, little tiny dots, the entire image, over 14 and a half feet, and the image only goes only goes three zeros to eight deep into the material, half the diameter of the human hair. That's how deep it goes into the shroud material. Okay, and it's still on there. Okay, so what happens was they 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 analyze the pixels, and every single pixel has the exact same density and coloration as the next one. No variation at all. That's amazing. To do that, to do that, the estimate amount of energy needed to pull that off is somewhere between 40,000 billion watts of power released in about a 26 millionths of a second. It's, it's somewhat, the only thing we have equivalent to it are the shadows that are on the walls in Hiroshima and Nagasaki of people when the bomb dropped and exploded. They have shadows of people on walls, buildings. So when the atomic the bomb went off, okay, the people, yeah. the, their image of running is on, is like burned. The image is the burned onto yeah. the wall. Okay. Burned onto the walls. Mm-hmm. Okay, so basically we're saying that when Jesus was resurrected, part of this yes. was supernatural, this 40,000 billion watts of power burned his image or sealed or I don't know what the right verb would be onto the cloth <laughs> yeah yeah right. it is it's not it, the irony of it is when they did the testing they can't prove it's a burn uh, they all the other burn marks on the shroud from the fire show up fine but not the shroud the image disappears when you backlight it okay and that blew, right. blew a lot of people away okay so but at any rate yeah this is this way and they tried to duplicate this to get a feel for it, the eczema laser that makes semiconductors, mm-hmm. well, they got a little square, only about maybe a half an inch by half an inch, that had some of the physical properties, but not all. Mm-hmm. But that's an eczema laser the size of a small kitchen. Okay. Burst of energy. Wow. But you can imagine, for that whole thing, the amount of force needed was unbelievable. 
Okay. Right. Well, that's just it. It makes it unbelievable, which then when you delve into the scientific evidence, it only leads you to that yes. it is believable because it is a miracle. He exactly. overcame death because he was dead as a doorknob, but he, he overcame, overcame death. death. Yeah. And then uh, carbon dating, too. I mean, a lot of scientific people yep. will say, oh, what does the carbon dating show? Because, you know, everybody loves carbon dating. Uh, what, what, what's, what's been discovered with that? Well, it showed Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that flummoxed all the scientists involved in it. They said, oh, I can't believe this. This, this. this doesn't make sense. Until another a lady by the name of Sue Benfield, she had a strong hunch that the sample was no good. What they did was, is they cut a sample in good faith, I believe, but it was unfortunately a sample taken from the upper left section of the shroud, which is most frequently handled by bishops over the centuries when they displayed the shroud. Mm-hmm. And they took a piece about three and a quarter inches by, by a quarter inch, and they cut that in six different pieces, okay, mm-hmm. and gave two pieces each to three different labs. Originally, they were going to take seven small pieces from seven different places on the shroud. Then that got reduced to three from three different places. Then it got reduced to three from one place only, the most frequently handled place, which didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, the key scientists were not involved, a lot of them were not even taken into consideration when they discussed when to do that. But I think the scientists were sincere that did the test. It just showed Middle Ages, and Sue said, let's look at the sample. So they went to Ray Rogers. Ray was a, a, a nationally known chemist with Los Alamos Labs. And Ray kind of told him, forget it, I don't want to, it's already been proven middle age. And they said, please, do us a favor. So he puts it under the electron microscope, checks it, and he finds out, he said, oh my goodness, it's, you can't use this as an example because there were threads that were woven into the very sample that they tested. Well, there were and threads the threads wo- were dyed brown. Okay. What is that indicating? Yeah, something the later. Were dyed brown. You mean yeah, something was added something to later. it you later? See? Okay. All right. Yeah, it was repaired in the Middle Ages. Oh, oh, gotcha. Okay, so it was repaired. So they were experts at tapestry in the Middle Ages. They knew how to repair tapestry to where you did have no idea that they repaired it. It was so good. Got it. So did they and the carbon date? was similar. Okay. Did they end up carbon dating another section though? No, they haven't been able to. Oh, they haven't been able to. Okay. Huh. Nope. Right. Nope. Church has not granted them uh, to be able to do that. Okay. So there are a number of issues with doing that because there's like a bacteria that's growing on the shroud that they've been trying to counter. Huh. But the problem is in countering it, they also generate more foreign material onto the material. Okay. Right. Which creates some issues too. Okay. But at any rate, it was proven that, that Ray Rogers wrote an official report to crying that you can't use it. And in 2008, Nine more researchers from Los Alamos also confirmed Ray Rogers' findings. Okay, interesting. And okay. They, so, it, yeah. Now so that's I, all been validated. Okay, so when people see the shroud for the first time and they're allowed to get up close to it, um, what are their reactions? Pretty profound. In your mind, what is the shroud telling the world? Because God doesn't give us these artifacts to just you know for a few people to learn about. I mean, we no. know we have Our Lady Guadalupe image and a ton of other, you know, artifacts. What's the shroud telling the world? When you see the shroud, you are overwhelmed by the visible love of God. Mm -hmm. The visible love of God. 
the shroud helps you fall in love with God. It ties right in to what uh, St. Augustine, whom most Protestants acknowledge as, as, as a titan in, in the field of theology. But he says the greatest adventure in life is to seek God. The greatest accomplishment in life is to find God. But the last one is where the shroud takes you. The greatest romance in life is to fall in love with God. And when you see the shroud, and you see the lash marks, and you see the face, and you see the nobility and the love that's in that face, and the blood coming down the cheeks and down the hair, it just totals you. Ooh, um, you're making me... I'm sorry. And it pulls you... It, 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 it pulls you right into the heart of God, which is where he wants us to go. Okay. And I didn't mean to butcher your last sentence there, so I will make sure I, I piece that together just fine. Um, you know, Bill, in this day and time when there's so many things going on where right is being called wrong and wrong is being called yes. right and laws are being put in place yes. which enshrine, you know, the wrongness as law, Yes. And then when we look back and we and when people and I, I know you have so much more to give and to share and we're, we're just running out of time. Um, but when I think back at your description of, of the flogging, uh, the scourging of Jesus Christ at the pillar. And I mean, I didn't know about the thorns that the thorns would, would have produced more pain. And I know, you know, what it feels like when you put your finger on a hot burner. It doesn't just burn your finger. Yeah. It sends that shooting, you know, that shooting awareness you know yes. acutely all throughout your body yeah. it's like hit your feet and back again and um and to think that jesus christ who was a friend to sinners you know who who restored you know sight to the blind health to the sick um you know restoration he's all about restoration and um and and then he leaves us this beautiful image the shroud of turin only for us to discover it years and years later. I mean, it's just, I mean, it shows us again how much he loves us and his patience. But also, I think, too, the, the courage. I mean, if he has the courage to go through all that, do we not, should we not have the courage to stand up for Jesus Christ? Well, that, that says it all right there. You just, you just put it all out there right there. And it was interesting because I, when I give my talk, I, I, I lead to this one point. I said, and, and guess what? When the centurion saw all of this going down, the first guy we know made it into heaven was a thief. When I speak at jails, that resonates. Mm-hmm. But what the thing that really got to him was, because he saw he was with him throughout all the ridicule, throughout all the cursing, throughout all the, the uh, total humiliation. He saw it all. Mm-hmm. And even then, the people were at the foot of the cross yelling at him and, and taunting him. Mm-hmm. He saw the whole thing. And there's Jesus gasping for breath. But then he looked, Jesus looks up. And he says, he can barely get it out. He says, Father, forgive them. Yes. They don't know what they're doing. And that totaled the centurion. I believe it was at that point, you know. Wow. Surely this man must be the son of God. Right. How could somebody forgive people that were doing all of that to them? Right. Uh, what, I, I, have I tell people, I say, look, if you've got people you haven't 
Huh? Oh, no, I was just going to say, I have, I have arthritis at times. It really flares up. And when I'm at church and yeah. kneeling, you know, on the at the pew, and, and after, you know, whatever, a minute and a half, two minutes, it really hurts my knees. But there's so many times I just, yeah. I, I force myself to continue kneeling and not resting on my rear yeah. end. Because uh, when I look up at the cross and I see Jesus on that cross, which I'm so appreciative of the fact that the Catholic Church, we show Jesus on the cross. It's not a cross empty of Jesus because yeah. Jesus tells us to no, carry our cross. cross. No, exactly. And I just, I look up there and I think, all right, Jesus, if you could go through all that, surely I can put up with a couple minutes of prayer pain, you know, that my knees are screaming out at me. Because <laughs> I just think, gosh, if yeah. people no, would... I know what you mean. I got some of that too. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Um, so what what else would you want people to know? Anything that we haven't covered that it's just like, ah, oh, Terry, I forgot to go over this or we didn't have time to go. What, what else would, would you want people to know? Well, it's always a little hard sometimes because there is so much entailed that I'm sure after I get off the phone with you, so I should have mentioned this or I should have mentioned that. Well, when we think about well, like what there the... are so many. Go ahead. I'll cut that out. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> No, I, I, I was going to say, there, there's so much that the Shroud um, reveals. Is there any, are, th are there any of the facts about the Shroud that would help listeners, even if they're not believers yet in Jesus yeah. Christ and, that, and his resurrection, what else would you want them yes. to know, believers and non-believers, that, that, that what Christ went through, what his body had to go through, what else, is there anything else in yes. that Shroud that you'd like, want listeners to know? Well, I think that the, the evidence uh, with the pixels and everything of the resurrection is the whole story, uh, because the death that he underwent was absolutely total. And if people, I just think we, we, it's hard to put it into words, because to fall in love with Jesus in this day and age is the greatest thing you can possibly do. And the shroud is a great picture that helps us perceive the reality of what Jesus did. And I think Jesus gave us the shroud for this day and age of unbelief. When I spoke at MIT, I said, you know, this is... You guys can, can do what you can to solve the image. How did the image get on the shroud? But it's the greatest testimony to the divinity of God as well as his love for us. And his forgiveness, I think that's what people need to grapple with. Um, a lot of people feel that they're beyond hope. Nobody's beyond hope. The reason Jesus went to the cross is to keep us from going to hell. That's right. Truthful. Yep. That's what it was all about. Keep us from going to hell. And what's the requirement there? It's not rocket science. He just said, believe in me. Mm -hmm. Look at me. See the love I have for you. That's what he's calling us to. If we don't want to go to hell, then, then it's kind of a negative way of approaching it. But spend some time reflecting on the love that was so great for us that he was willing to suffer such as God have the very people he created make fun of him and ridicule him and put him through this horrible thing. Mm -hmm. And for him to take on all the sins of the world, you know, that were yes. and that were to come, 
all of mankind's sins to take all of that physically on himself so we wouldn't have to. And, and He's the only one that could. One thing I forgot to mention, and this I would, I would have thought of this, is when he's carrying that cross and he walks outside the walls, and I tell people in my talk, I said, when he walked outside those walls, time stood still. His <laughs> history stood still. Mm-hmm. Because he became, at that moment, the blood sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Because that's what they did with animals for blood sacrifice. They'd throw their bodies over the city walls. Mm-hmm. And they'd throw their entrails and everything else over the city walls. And prisoners were crucified outside the city walls because they were the lowest of the low. Right. He became the blood sacrifice for all time. All those bulls and cows and calves and goats and sheep and all that stuff. Right. We're all pointing to this one moment in time when he walked outside the city walls. Mm-hmm. That was it. And, and the he shroud, our sin. And the shroud proves that, that what the Bible writes about is true. And what, and what, like you said, yeah. in the book of Isaiah, what Isaiah predicted, what was it, 700 years earlier, he gave a, am I right on that, clear description? Before Jesus. Yeah, yeah. He said it all. He did. I mean, to a point where it's hard for some Jewish people to even say, you know, because he's, he's part of their scriptures. Right, and it's so. it's difficult. Well, Bill, have you met um, Messianic Jews who came to their faith in Christ because of the shroud? No, I haven't. Okay, but you know they're out there. You know that when they pair up Isaiah oh, yeah. with the shroud, and yeah, okay. Yes. All right, well, it's all in there. <laughs> Bill Weingart, thank you for being on this interview today. Uh, I know you have so much more content to give, and maybe we can have you back again. I encourage everybody to uh, listen, uh, share the podcast, go on to the homepage, and and uh, click the video link. Because uh, you can you can watch Bill give this presentation. I'm sure in, in greater detail. And um, and Bill, keep doing what you're doing. The entire world needs to know what you know. And God has you about a very very important mission. Uh, so thank you for being on. Thank you.